for the week of April 9th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 614, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And in <laughs> Mushroom Kingdom, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh my God, I know you were trying to make it, make it somewhat relevant to this week's news, but I don't play Mushroom Mario, Kingdom, never, the Mario I've, Brothers, wowza! You know, I'm so out of it uh, mm-hmm. that I I never played Mario Brothers. I played Mario Kart with my kids when they were younger, and they just cleaned the floor with me. It was never any fun. I was like, I couldn't figure out what they were doing on this Nintendo <laughs> Switch thing. I was like, you're old. you're old. I was so old. I was like, <laughs> I came in like last of last place. I was so like, the game was like already in its third version. But anyway. Well, well, we don't want to spoil the box office results, but let's just say a lot of screenwriters are dusting off their spec scripts about uh, Donkey Kong, Asteroids, uh, Zelda. These are going to get turned into movies. Qbert. Qbert. I think that was, well, that was in the Adam Sandler movie. But anyway, that was what was in some previous movies. What are we going to talk about today on our podcast? You, you know, I was going to say what, Tetris, but ironically, that is... It is a fine documentary film, so I've heard. I look forward to watching it. Is, I don't think it's a documentary. I think it's... Yes, is it, no. Well, it's a documentary film about the origins of Tetris, unless you're talking about another movie. This is a document... Mm. Oh, you mean it's a fictional film based on documentary. It's a, based on a true story. Is that what you mean? I guess so. It's on oh. Apple TV. Oh, I, so, I misunderstood. Uh, I thought it was actually a documentary film, but so it's a fictional film based on the story. Oh, it is a biographical film. You're right. I'm wrong as always. So yeah, it's it's a film based on the true story. Oh, it stars Taron Egerton, who is not, in fact, the creator of Tetris. So fair enough. I have not watched <laughs> it yet. I'm looking forward to checking it out. It just debuted like ten days ago on Apple TV. Yes. Where I am watching Shrinked. Ah, well, there you go. I just yeah. watched Playground, a French film on the service Mubi, which if you're really into art films and foreign films, uh, Mubi is an excellent service. If you're a fan of Criterion, you might enjoy Mubi. Uh, they often have very inexpensive introductions, like three months for $5 a month before it bumps up to 15 uh, they've got a lot. Some of my favorite movies of the year I have discovered on Mubi. This film, Playground, is about bullying on a playground in, in a school in France. And oh my God, it is the most stressful film. If you watch it, you will homeschool your children. I mean, you're just like, oh my God. It was excellent though. Kind of like the Darden brothers. It has a sense of immediacy about it that is just palpable. I was, I was squirming in my seat over what was happening. Uh, terrific film, I must say. Leaped up to one of my favorites of 2022. Uh, but that's what we've been watching. What are we going to talk about? This week on Showbiz Sandbox, we have a bit of a spring break, okay? You'll get the usual stories, the worldwide box office and so on, but Michael has no soapbox to, to get on. And another and, thing. And, and I have no statistics to get lost in. Two plus four minus seven, carry the five. Adjusted for inflation. All <laughs> in all, by the way, the, the podcast uh, should only last about an hour and a half. That's, all right, all right. Yeah, it's about an hour and a half shorter than our usual, by the yeah, way. Exactly. Uh, at least Michael has his obituaries. And oh, my God, he has so many obituaries. I, mean, <laughs> I do. Like, I do not understand where he pulls them. We from. even have an obituary challenge this week. Oh, what? Are you serious? Stay tuned. Oh, by the way, I forgot to ask Berlin before the show began. Is there a podcast next week? Yes. Uh, oh, great. Yeah, All right. Okay. Well, uh, by the way, first, movies based on video games are cursed no more. 
Okay, so let's get that out of the way. Ding dong, oh, the curse is dead. The big curse. The yeah, well, curse. I think that's not a video game, but that's okay. more of a, a movie that you might find on movie, actually. Or no, probably now Warner Brothers Discovery, whatever their new thing is. Uh, by the way, the Shrek universe is threatening not one, but two more sequels. Pretty much no one has asked for. I mean, I want the, the Gingerbread Man sequel. Like, not my gumdrop buttons. You know, like, <laughs> where is that sequel? Uh, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at illegal streams and illegal streaming. In the old days, the big problem was music piracy, you know, where rogue websites offered up digital copies of new albums for pennies on the dollar. Nowadays, well, the big frauds are committed by labels pumping up their numbers and rogue companies looking to siphon off royalties from legitimate artists. We'll explain. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gilt to fill us in on last week's video game movie. I mean, on last week's box office. Uh, by the way, there are Wizard of Oz video games spun off from the books by L. Frank Baum. You can find them on Super Nintendo. So who knew? They may be out of print by now, but they existed once upon a time. Anyway, we are looking at box office around the world. We have a link to Comscore in our show notes. We're looking at the box office for the entire week, ending Sunday, April 9th, and the number one film around the world. Uh, it's leveling up. It's sprouting mushrooms, whatever you want to say. It's the Super Mario Brothers movie, a animated Live action and animated version, I guess, mostly animated version, uh, based on the video game series that was previously turned into a big flop film starring Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. This version cost about $100 million to make, and it had a massive opening week, setting all sorts of obscure box office records, animated films, films based on a video game, worldwide box, etc., and so on and so forth. But it's big. $378 million worldwide. It's close to a record, though there was an implication in some of the trades that there is a Chinese film that may have opened bigger, but I've looked and I can't figure out what movie Noja and a few others seemed like possibilities, but I can't find out any Chinese film that opened bigger worldwide or the bigger total opening week gross. Certainly, it didn't set any records in China, continuing a trend of Hollywood movies really getting the cold shoulder from audiences even when they're allowed to be released. But the big news, Super Mario Brothers movie, based on a video game, almost $400 million worldwide, more than tripling its reported budget. It's in the black right off the bat. If you have net points, you really, really should be able to get some, but you probably won't. But no, no, is, the movie still is, it's, uh, it costs so little to make by Illumination that it has not actually broken even yet and never will. <laughs> That's right. Never so that is a big success story. Do you uh -huh. know what it really generated? I can tell you what it generated. My mm -hmm. inbox today, which as you know, Michael, I am wont to check. Um, oh, Lord. <laughs> Sperling, emergency. You could put, send him a subject line. You're his friend for 30 years 20 years you send him you he speaks to you every week on the air you send him an email from your actual email address to all four of his email addresses that you have and you say emergency help quickly oh my god this is urgent nothing crickets and what did you get in your inbox today that i'm surprised you saw um, well, uh, I got a couple things. Uh, one, IMAX delivers its best opening weekend ever for an animated film with $21.6 million <laughs> for the debut uh -huh. of the Super Mario Brothers. Okay, that was number one. Is that worldwide? And then from our folk, from the fr our friends at AMC, uh, they say they had a super 
Easter weekend. Uh, okay. Their busiest weekend of 2023, which is not saying much. I mean, it's like the first weekend in, in April, no, mm-hmm. second weekend in April. Uh, the company's third busiest weekend since December of 2019. Uh, I would imagine that their first and second were Spider-Man No Way Home and also uh, Avatar. And then Cinemark celebrates its highest single day attendance since Christmas Day of 2019. Well, now that's saying something, isn't it? Yeah, that is saying something. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty good. Um, so uh, you're saying everybody was talking about this movie. Correct. That's right. It was a big hit. And number two is another movie that's generating a lot of chatter. John Wick Chapter 4. $52 million this week. It's at $306 million worldwide. It cost $100 million to make. They've now tripled their budget. They're now saying, you know, when we said this was the last one of the original, maybe not. So, and this movie made less than Super Mario Brothers did in its opening week. No, it's only open for a few weeks, but still, that's how big the Super Mario Brothers movie. John Wick is the fourth in a franchise. The first one made $90 million. The second one made $170 million, almost doubling it. The third one made $330 million, almost doubling that. And now we're looking at the fourth one, which may get up to, you know, if, if it can get to $600 million, which uh, I doubt. Um, it'll probably slow down by then. But still, great results for that movie, dwarfed by the Super Mario Brothers movie. However, it ain't a competition. They're both hits. Will Dungeons and Dragons be a hit? It got pretty good reviews. It got good audience scores. It second week now, it made $52 million, pretty good hold. It's at $134 million worldwide. It's got a long road to hoe before it gets to $450 million. That would triple its reported budget, but it's a good start. Air, the Ben Affleck movie, the reports vary about how much this movie costs. It got picked up by Amazon. It's open to $31 million worldwide. I believe it will get at least a 30-day theatrical exclusive. The magic number, Amazon, is 45 days. And if you're still making money, there's no reason to yank it. But that's what you should really bank on. But 30 days is not bad. I guess theaters will take it. They used to have, like, what, six months, nine months? Now they're down to saying, 30 days? Okay. <laughs> and, and in some territories, uh, exhibitors were telling me, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess we are playing that movie. But, no, I mean, it's like on the smallest screen, and we're only keeping it for a week, maybe two, because after two weeks, it's going to be streaming on Amazon Prime. And I was like, are you serious? And... They said, yeah, you know, I guess in, in foreign countries, in international territories, not all of them, but some of them, it's, gonna, it's going straight to, uh, straight to streaming. So it's, it's uh, yeah, right. So it's, it's other countries that they're, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've always known that, you know, it's not the, it's not the same in every territory. Yeah. It's, this is annoying. Sperling was complaining about IMDb's uh, tweaking to its website. Any change really infuriates people. It's so confusing. Well, hap- well, why didn't you do it the way it was? Even if they're trying to improve it. But here I am trying to look at what movies opened up in January, February, and March. Because there are some big movies to counter Sperling's claim that, you know, well, big deal that Super Mario Brothers had somebody's best week of the year. Well, you know, I wanted to say, well, what are some of the earlier films that have already come out? Even though we know Avatar had was the biggest film of the year so far because it opened at the end of December and then made a lot of its money in January and February. Uh, but they've tweaked their thing. And so instead of being able to call up the calendar of movies that have been released in theaters, uh, you can't go backwards. If I want to know what's no. in March or February or January, like I often do, uh, not happening. Uh, not easily. Maybe, maybe you need to be an a, you know, IMDb Pro subscriber. Uh, I'm sure, but they're not even saying, hey, if you want to go back, you know, become a Pro subscriber, and that's the way to do that. 
All right, Super Mario Brothers, $380 million. John Wick, Chapter 4, that's past the $300 million mark. Dungeons and Dragons, that's just about to match its total uh, budget of $150 million. Air may have cost $90 million, but Ben Affleck wanted to see it in theaters. Amazon snatched it up and gave him a good, strong, wide release with an exclusive 30-day theatrical, at least in North America, and it opened up to $30 million. A good opening for a movie geared towards adults. You know, it's not like uh, uh, Michael Jordan appears in the movie, <laughs> um, but we'll have to see where it ends up. It's, uh, you know, will it be more valuable to Amazon because it had that play? I would say so. Uh, well, Suzumi, let's put it this way. I'm going to see it in the movie theater. Well, there you go. And you're an Amazon Prime member, right? Correct. But you're not the regular public. No, no, I'm, I'm so much more. What do you mean I'm not the I'm Joe and John Q public, practically. Well, you've often talked about how you like to support movies in theaters, even if, and especially if they're getting on streaming because you want them to know people still want to see movies in the theater and you're totally on the exhibitor's side. So I, I think maybe you're making a statement as much as just reacting to your personal desire. Well, that's true too, but still. <laughs> and let us know what you think of it. And people, if they see a movie and, and really love it and it's in their territory and it's making money and we don't mention it, We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Uh, Suzumi is the Japanese animated film. Uh, by uh, the acclaimed director Makato Shinkai. Uh, that made about $30 million this week. It's at $250 million worldwide. I think that opens up uh, any day now here in the U.S. Hachiko is the Chinese weepy about a professor and his loyal dog. That made another $18 million. That's at $27 million worldwide. Then we have another opening film. Um, this is The Pope's Exorcist starring Russell Crowe. Good heavens, what is he doing in this movie? It grossed $12 million on its opening week. Jackie Chan, however, is in the tail end of his career. He used to be have his movies open in China on the biggest holidays of the year. Now he's got sort of a secondary holiday. His movie Ride On, which is sort of an ode to stuntmen, in this case a stuntman and his horse. Uh, this movie opened up to $12 million. Uh, it'll be just fine when all is said and done. We don't know the budget, but it's sort of a, you know... Late in the career, ah, it's good to see Jackie Chan back up on the screen. Scream 6, of course, keeps chugging along. That's at about $160 million worldwide. The Chinese drama Post Truth, uh, that's at $93 million. That will pass the $100 million mark. And in France, we have the first of a two-part epic. It's The Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan. Part one of the classic Three Musketeers tale. They filmed both movies at the same time, spent about $80 million on them both. So they're saying this one cost about $40 million. That's a lot of money for a French film. It opened up to a soft $6 million, but I think it's like just on a limited release. So there was strong interest in the movie. We'll have to see how it does next week. Hopefully it'll have a good hold or even improve on its box office. I saw the trailer and it looks like the same old, you know... Three Musketeers, and I love that version from the 70s by Richard Donner, but I'm interested. It looks at least like a serious, substantial one that leans heavily on the politics that were in the original novel. Detective Conan, The Phantom of Baker Street, is a Japanese animated film from 2002. 21 years later, it's getting released in China because they want product and nobody's watching Hollywood movies. $5 million it made this week, so I think, that's from China alone, of course, I think that the total 
gross for this movie is now $39 million. It's a long-running series of flicks. I don't think they had incorporated that $5 million on Wikipedia yet. And so I believe the total budget is, pardon me, the total gross is $39 million worldwide. Back in the U.S., we have a couple more movies. His Only Son, a faith-based film, uh, that made $4 million this week. It's at $9 million total. We reported that others said this was the first crowd-funded wide release. Did you get a chance to look into that, Sperling? No, I haven't, although I really do want to. Uh, I, I thought it was, uh, it certainly, I'll say this, the movie Boy, B-O-Y, by mm-hmm. uh, Taika Waititi, uh, mm-hmm. I know he, I, I donated like $10 to that so that he could get it into movie theaters. Now, it was not a wide release. Well, that's, was, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about okay. a wide release. They're not talking about getting it on one screen or 10 screens or 50 screens. They're saying this is the first crowdfunded wide release. How you define wide release, I don't know, but they were on 1,900 screens. So That's a wide release. That's a wide I mean, release. Yeah, there's no, no doubt about that. Whether you would count something as 1,000 screens as a wide release, I don't know. But first, you got to find an example. Some uh, In China, back in China, there's a new Journey to the West film. I think it's yet another version. It's open very modestly, whatever it is. I couldn't really track it down. It, it seems to have made about $6 million total. This, of course, is one of the most popular tales of all time worldwide. It's like Robin Hood or King Arthur. If you're in Asia, you will know the Journey to the West epic, especially, of course, if you're from China. But I'm not sure. But there's another movie with the word journey in it. It's a documentary film, I think probably one-off, about Andrea Bocelli. It's called The Journey, a music special from Andrea Bocelli, and it made about $3 million. I assume it's a sort of a one-week-only fun thing. And then scrolling down the list, there's an, an Indian action film called Bola which made about $3 million this week. I think it's at $10 million total. Really, the Indian market has fallen through the cracks. It's taking longer and longer to get any updates on what movies have opened there. So uh, we're, we're, we're dropping the ball, but it's only because we have a lack of information. And you can find about 10 or 12 other movies on our list. If a movie makes about a million dollars worldwide, especially if it's in a foreign country and a movie we haven't heard about, we will highlight it and talk about it. We're still looking for good info on Japan, Indian, and Korean box offices that we can get by Monday morning so we can include it in our podcast. If you know anything, let us know. And if you know about a remake or a reboot, oh my gosh, do we want to hear about it? Because Hollywood loves them, don't they, Sperling? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to this podcast on The Ankler, and they were talking about how things are so uncertain right now in Hollywood, thanks in large part to streaming, that that in times of uncertainty, everybody goes back to what they used to know. They, they, they lean on tried and true and tested uh, executives and business plans, and they, they kind of pointed like, look at Bob Iger, he's come back, like all of these. And it, it was talking about basically how some of these uh, executives, they're just not leaving. You know, they're like 80 years old, uh, you know, and they're still heading up, you know, uh, development. Well, sure enough, we now have Shrek being kind of rebooted, if right. you will. They're having, a, they're having a, a, a stock meeting where they're trying to gin up excitement for their stock and they want to tell investors and everybody, ah, you know, you can, you can pitch a new movie that they've never heard of based on material they've never heard of, but it's easy to say, we're going to do a new Shrek. Right. Well, this is all we're talking you know, about. Well, look, you know, even if we say it's going to make 50 percent of the last one made 600 million, so we'll make 300 million. So only spent 100 million dollars on it and spend 100 million dollars marketing it. We'll make 100 million dollars in theaters. And then guess what? We'll actually have it for our streaming service. You see, we're told. But at the end of the day, you know, huge advances don't come from doing the same old thing. It doesn't usually come from the non risk taking. It comes from risk taking. Like making the original Shrek. 
which was based Correct. on a picture book, but still felt like a bit of a gamble. Anyway, it's going to have the original voice cast of Shrek 5. They even hinted about doing a spinoff with Donkey, voiced by Eddie Murphy. Dear God, is anybody... Nothing to do with Eddie Murphy. It's a perfectly good sidekick. Is it? I mean, Puss in Boots works. You look at that. They're on the second film, third film? Uh, second film, I think. Yeah, and, uh, and it's doing great. So anything's possible, but decades later, are we really demanding a donkey spinoff? And of course, Puss in Boots is from Shrek, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if I can still see that because everybody I know who's seen it has loved the movie. Yeah, well, you can see it in theaters or online, I'm sure. And Stranger Things, they're doing a stage prequel in London, and now they've announced we're going to do an animated series. I forgot to look up what the heck it is. At least the stage thing is a prequel, but, you know, Stranger Things was a hit. Do we need 17 versions of a Stranger Not everything Not really. that's a hit no. should be expanded. Anything can be done well. We understand that. The only thing I'll take issue with is the idea that all these spinoffs and franchise is new. It ain't new. Since the silent era, you get a character like the Tramp, make 100 movies about it. You get a French, King Kong is a hit out of nowhere. Son of Kong was out within six months of the original film. Piece of crap. <laughs> Nobody likes it. But they put out a sequel immediately. This is not, you tell a story about Robin Hood? Orally, back in the 1400s, 1500s, if people like it, you tell another one. You know, I'll give you another story about Robin and his merry men. That's how these things work. They always have, they always will. And in terms of Hollywood being so uncertain, it's always uncertain, isn't it? When has there ever been a time, certainly not on our podcast, where people are like, ah, everything's normal, we know how things work, everything's fine. DVDs, Blu-rays, VHS, cable, streaming, uh, worldwide market versus the uh, North American box office, uh, pay, pay-per-view, pay-on-demand. I mean, all these things roil up how they think the business is supposed to work. It's always a constant that there's always new challenges on the horizon, and I don't think leaning on sequels is anything new. I agree. I, what's the sequel for Air going to be? Like, there's Air Jordans. I mean, the guy's made it. You well, know, there's a lot. There's, you could you could do about the the licensing agreement with Kanye West and how that blew up in their face, or or Beyonce. Now she's like, yeah, I'm not happy. I'm taking it back. You could do all the other stars who had their own sneakers and then they weren't as successful as Air Jordan. Did they feel empty inside? I don't, I don't know. know. I, I, I will tell know. you this. I'm mm-hmm. trying to buy tickets for the Tuesday matinees or the Tuesday evening performances. Just to prove you'll actually go see air. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and a lot of them are sold out. What? Yeah. No. I, I think it's because. No, no, a lot no, of them no, are, no, no. Something's going on. There's no way air is sold out on a Tuesday okay, night. Okay. Okay. In, in fairness, the first two rows are available. <laughs> no, so. no, no, no. If you're telling me every other seat is taken other than the first two rows, I will take that as sold out. Because the first two rows are unwatchable. I grant you that. You're telling me there's not a single seat available in the theater? Uh, at the 3.30 and the 6.30 shows. At the, uh, the 3.30 is sold out? I, I don't get it. Other than no. the fact that there are a couple of retirement homes around that particular theater that I wonder. And it's the discount day, which might have something to do with it. Why don't you look at Wednesday? <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> that 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 seems hard to believe. Um, it, will you you'll watch it on streaming then? Of course, if if you can't see it in the theater, right? Yeah, Wednesday is a little better, by the way. I will admit, a little better. All right. The, I just um, don't understand why everybody like. What is the deal? Why in that particular, th- what those two theaters? Like, what is the deal? Well, I'm gonna say Wednesday, April twelfth. Digital, you want me to check the discount time, 3.40 p.m.? Not a single ticket sold. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In America, there's four seats told for the 530 screening, which is not, uh, which is not discounted. Um, at the summit, uh, 2 p.m., 30% off, no tickets sold. 520, no tickets sold. 720, a sensory-friendly screening. So if you have you people lo- they that, lower that's an for issue. That, they, they usually lower the volume. All right, now 715 on Wednesday. There's already two, four, six, eight, 10, 11 seats sold. You've got about 30 seats left, but that's a good chunk for Vestavia. That's the dine and dash place. You know, you can dine in at the AM Vestavia Hills. And so you say you want to have dinner and see a movie, you book it in a little advance because they're small theaters. Yeah, and by the way, you don't dine and dash. You're supposed to dine and pay. <laughs> You're supposed to pay. Fair enough, fair enough. But if you stay at home, you'll be watching stuff like you, the Netflix series that is on top of the charts, according to Nielsen. Nielsen, of course, measures streaming numbers in North America on smart TVs only and only for certain outlets like Amazon, Apple, Disney, HBO Max, Hulu, Netflix, Peacock, Pluto, and Tubi. If you watch on your laptop, like I watched on Mubi, uh, not tracked. And Pluto and Tubi, of course, are fast services, free ad-supported television. But you can be in the top 10 on any of those outlets. You is at number one. That's the you know, stalker serial killer guy who is on Netflix. Uh, it's the fourth, I think, of fifth and final season, perhaps. The teen flick soap opera Outer Banks is on there. Netflix has really made a, uh, a big business out of doing documentaries. They're really into the documentary genre, and they do it well. People really like them. There's one about that plane that disappeared, MH370. Uh, that opened to a billion minutes of viewing on, on HBO Max. The Last of Us is chugging along. If you like the TV series, Luther, uh, starring Idris Elba. Netflix has a new movie, Luther, The Fallen Sun, S-U-N. And then there's The Mandalorian, which, you know is on the charts, but not tearing it up like you might think it should, um, NCIS. And there's a couple shows that are on multiple outlets at the same time. NCIS, it has a library on Netflix and Paramount+. Plus. And uh, there's another movie among the original series, or acquired series, I should say, and that is New Amsterdam, which has jumped under the charts. This is a medical drama starring a guy from The Blacklist. It's on the charts because it's on Netflix and Peacock, and now they're able to combine those numbers and show you how popular it is. It's not as popular as Friends or Gilmore Girls or The Blacklist, which is at number seven on the acquired list, but lots of stuff is being watched on streamers. So everybody's happy about that. But I have a question, Sperling. There's a rumor about HBO Max. What will they call the new service when they combine Discovery and HBO Max? What will they call it? And the- I think they're... They're going to just call it Max. 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 Yeah. Max. What is wrong with the HBO brand? Is Discovery going to have its feelings hurt? Why the hell would you dump the HBO? Now, mind you, if you log into Max, there'll probably be an HBO tile and a Discovery tile and a Warner Brothers tile and something else or or tiles for different genres. But I I don't know why you wouldn't use HBO Max. I mean, I don't know. Max, though, I suppose you can make a cute little guy named Max, you know, a cute little cartoon character hey max that will you know lure you into the joys of hbo discovery max but i don't know max seemed a weird deal but i guess it's no big deal no matter what they choose the service will draw on people and pretty soon it'll seem reasonable but peacock that made sense the logo for nbc it's a peacock you name the streamer peacock i get it plus you're combining universal nbc it just made sense hbo discovery max people i don't know (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, 
I'll, I'll be honest. If that's not a big deal, then I do wonder if some of the the stories we have in Big Deal or Big Whoop are a mm. big deal to you. Because Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss some of the top headlines in entertainment, and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Now, our first story, I love this story. I don't yeah, know I do why. <laughs> I love this story. Mick Mars, he is the guitarist and co-founding member of Motley Crue. He is suing his three fellow band members after decades of recording albums and touring the world. Mars announced he was not going to tour again because of a debilitating spine-fusing condition called AS. That is so not rock and roll, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Come on, people. Uh, it's not sex, drugs, and AS. You're getting old. You're getting old. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. But, you know, it's a difficult issue. Illness, of course. I'm not making fun of the illness. Yeah, no, it Just is. the idea that rock and rollers get older. Like any corporation, I mean, rock band, uh, Motley Crue has extensive contracts and deals in place. I mean, they, you know, in be between all the, the members, uh, Mars had a cut of future earnings and he claims the other guys want to cut him out after 41 years together. Instead of confirming his desire not to tour anymore, they announced he was retiring and took him to private arbitration to push Mars to accept a cut in his slice of the pie. Mars said he always planned to continue recording with the band in certain shows, just that his body wasn't up for lengthy tours anymore. Oh, and he actually would still keep his piece of the pie. Thank you very much. It's worth tens of millions of dollars down the road. <laughs> uh, P.S. Nikki Six recorded all his bass parts and didn't play a single note live. Singer Vince Neil pre-records a lot of his vocals and drummer Tommy Lee even recorded some of his parts. So there... Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop in the scheme of things, but it's hard. I mean, this band, they had a warts and all biography where they were like, they, they all gave their own individual interviews and were like, yeah, screw, you know, they just let it all out. And here they are doing it again. This guy says they've been trying to kick him out since 1989. Like, well, how hard is it? But apparently he was the one who really, he came up with the name. He had some funds early on that they needed. And so they really couldn't kick him out because it was kind of his, you know, so they've really gotten on each other's nerves for decades. Man, it's got to be tough being in a band. But uh, the, the cat claws really came out on this one. You know, having pre-recorded tracks in case you screw up, not a total shock. Though some yeah. people are like, everybody does. It's like, no. Having background vocals for your lead vocal recorded, maybe that's what they're talking. You know, he pre-records a lot of his vocals. Well, if that means other stuff. But uh, uh, Mars says, you know, fans would see the drummer walking towards his drums or having his fists in the air while the drums are being played, quote unquote. So, <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's entertaining and it's it's sad after all these decades. But you know what? It's not about love. It's about business. And at the end of the day, these these guys are all human, all these rock stars and, and wealthy. Nick, yeah, well, that is true. <laughs> or they Nikki, should be. Nikki Six used to live in a neighborhood around me. Of course he, he did. His, you of course he did. You have the most storied neighborhood in all of America. <laughs> Well, Beyonce uh -huh. probably comes by and borrows a cup of sugar from you. <laughs> no, she sends. She has people for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they come in a limo. No, just so kidding. Nikki Six was partying hard near you. No, you know he he uh, he would show up at the back to school nights. It was just like the weirdest thing. It's like there's Nikki Six, and during Halloween he lived in this neighborhood that was known for having like 
it was the neighborhood people would go to to trick or treat. So there were thousands of kids and I am not exaggerating. I uh-huh. thought they should charge admission for this. I mean, thousands of kids trick or treating and all of these houses got decked up and he every year would deck out his house for Halloween and it was just decorated to the max. I mean, yeah, it was unbelievable. There'd, there'd be the Ghostbusters stuff out front and the, you know, haunted house stuff out front. I mean, and he, and then he sold it and the people who bought it felt obligated to continue it because they didn't do it for one year and people were like, ah, those, those guys, we don't like them. And the next year they were like, oh yeah, we'll show you. And then, then their house was like tricked out. <laughs> anyway, that's. Well, that's he had kids, calling. so I bet their kids read stuff like Captain Underpants when they were young. Oh, I like the way you tied that to our next story, because, Michael, you recently did a story for Parade Magazine about the best books of all time. And now one indie bookstore nominated the Silly Captain Underpants series by Dave Pilkey. You might say, well, why? How could that possibly be one of the best books of all time? And really, it was because it got the owner's son to read for the first time. Well, Pilkey is still making bad puns and fart jokes, and it's Got him back on top of the publisher's weekly overall bestseller list. The latest in the Dogman series is titled 20,000 Fleas Under the Sea. <laughs> I see what he did there. You know, 20,000. Yeah, I mm-hmm. get it. Keep going. And uh, in its first week on sale in North America, it has sold at least 225,000 copies, which is a lot of copies. Like you could get on the bestseller list. It's like you sell 3,000 Ten copies. Ten times over. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Uh, also debuting are two nonfiction titles. One on the art and science of longevity and the other on how to pray your way to a sense of calm. I guess if you're going to live a really long time, you need to like mellow out. I don't know. Uh, Romance writer Colleen Hoover has three titles in the top 10 and the new Amazon series Daisy Jones and the Six hasn't hit the top 10 in streaming on Nielsen yet. But the the novel that it's based on, yeah, that really has. Uh, It's back on the charts. It's the big, uh, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Um, it's a it's a big whoop. You know, he's a big long term bestseller. By the way, if you want to get on the publisher's weekly list for kids books, uh, they have a chart that goes to twenty five uh, lists. So you can say I'm on the publisher's weekly bestseller list if you're number twenty five. And that title this week sold two thousand three hundred thirty one copies. So if we self published a book and got on the nonfiction list, we could say, Hey, everybody, buy our book. You know, this week. And if it's a valid sale in a valid category. Uh, like, uh, you know, uh, history or current events or something, um, we could be on the best, you know, the history of, uh, you know, showbiz sandbox. Well, we could be on the top 10 list if we sell, we'd have to sell 9,000 copies. Okay. Well, we don't have 9,000 people ready to buy our book, do we? But not yet, not do, yet. Just, you, just like Daisy Jones and the six aren't on the Nielsen, uh, top 10 list yet for streaming. We'll get there. Yeah, that's right. And Dogman, uh, we could be on the list if we sold enough copies. Dogman is on the list, but it won't be on the New York Times overall bestseller list. Why? Because they decided to silo away and ignore kids' books as if they don't count during the era of Harry Potter when you were suddenly finding two, three, and four Harry Potter books on the charts at the same time. Publishers and some bookstores complained, what's the point? These are, well, what the heck? instead of embracing a, a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon. And so now they foolishly ignore all the new books that might break through to a wider audience. They, they tamp down and eliminate the chance for people to say, oh, I maybe want to explore that or learn what that's about. And so you don't get kids' books on the overall list anymore, and that's a shame. And we were talking last week about James Patterson's uh, 
problems and arguments about the Times and their bestseller right. list. Now, it's not very good. It's a proprietary formula that doesn't reflect book sales. And in some cases like this, it just re- doesn't reflect book sales because they just close their eyes. Imagine a top movie list that just says, well, we're not going to count animated films. Guess what? Super Mario Brothers wouldn't be on the list and people wouldn't hear about it. And that wouldn't help steamroll the success. So it's a big mistake. Well, and yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, plus it can be gamed. I mean, when you think about well, it. Well, no, everybody it, wants to stop gaming, but that's, yeah. I mean, that list, uh, you know, people that first week, they'll go out and they'll like buy all the copies just as well, a way to like get well, you have you have to you have to go to different stores and buy them all individually. If they you cannot buy from the publisher like 10,000 copies or if you're a politician, you can't just bulk buy your own memoir through the publisher and then have that count as a sale. It doesn't. So they do everything they can to sort of avoid that trickery. Yeah. Well, last week, uh, you know, we discussed the major strides the United Kingdom has made in sound stages. It's a major player on the world stage when it comes to hosting big movies and TV shows. And businesses have made a, by the way, do you see what we did there? Major uh-huh. player on the world mm-hmm. stage? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, businesses have made a, you know, the soundstage businesses, that is, they've made a major investment to back that up. The UK ranks secondly only to Los Angeles in the total amount of sound stages available, growing from 3.5 million to 4.5 million square feet. No, 5.4, year- 5.4. 5.4, I see. A little dyslexia there for me. Uh, in the last year alone, they've, they've grown that much. Keep that up and it might soon be the number one. Uh, they might actually surpass LA. They've got certainly the real estate to do so. But here's the thing, not if the conservative government of Rishi Sunak has anything to say about it. The government's valuation office agency just slapped massive rate hikes on the companies with sound stages in England and Wales. Now, England is not Scotland. Scotland and Northern Ireland aren't affected at the moment for some reason. But obviously, Greater London is where a lot of the shooting takes place. Pinewood's rates were quadrupled from 5 million to 20 million. That just is unbelievable to me that their, their tax rates would go up so much. The space owned by Warner Brothers saw its rates quintuple from 5 million to 25 million. Twickenham went from 500,000 to 2 million, and Ealing got off with a relatively sedate doubling of its rate to 3.5 million. It, I guess these are in dollars. Yes, uh, no I, explanation yeah. as of yet as to why everyone's tax rates are suddenly increasing so much. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. Um, you know, the conservative government likes to say it's friends to business, uh, but even, doesn't mean you shouldn't raise the rates. I had trouble finding out, well, how much does Pinewood make every year? How much are they grossing? How much are they making in profits? You know, if they're making $400 million, maybe $20 million is a reasonable tax rate fee to have on it. But the problem is the government hasn't explained itself. We don't have a good explanation for why there's this sudden massive increase other than maybe they need money and this is as good a place as any to find it. So I don't know that this is unconscionable. Maybe they were unconscionably low for decades. But I find that hard to believe. If they have a good story to tell, they need to tell it and explain to us and say, here's how much Ely makes in profits every year, and this is the percentage we're increasing it, you know. Maybe there's some validity to this, but they haven't made that case. So I'm going to assume that quadrupling and quintupling your tax rate in, in a few years is crazy. And, you know, what the heck? <laughs> and making yeah, it hard for it, these companies to stay in business. They're certainly complaining that they, you're going to have trouble staying in business. Are they actually threatening the livelihood of these sound stages? They may have to shut down. Or are they really just kvetching over something that should have been done at a more gradual pace long, long ago? Quintupling your rates within, I think it takes a few years to go into effect. I don't think it's 
like immediate this year. But even that may not be the case. Maybe it does go into effect right away. So uh, I found out everything I could, um, but there's no, nothing from the government about this that I could track down. If you know better, we've already given you the info. Let us know. Uh, you know, I don't want to assume it's ridiculous, but it sure feels ridiculous. Well, you know, we should have uh, this next story. We should have done maybe right after our book list story. I like uh, to bounce. I like to. I like to jump back and forth. I don't like three book stories in a row or four movies. You know, I always try to go books, movies, theater, music, TV. You know, I like to mix them up so you don't do that. But maybe that's not the way to go. Well, you may maybe rolled your eyes at our previous stories and the news stories that came out about publishers tweaking their new editions of books by Ian Fleming, Agatha Christie, and Roald Dahl. I mean, what do you really care? You bought an ebook of Matilda ages ago, so this nonsense won't affect you, that's for sure. And you've got your beloved copy of Agatha Christie, mere, you know, their, her whole mystery series that datedly refer to, quote-unquote, Orientals, by the way. Yeah, apologies to our Asian audience. Uh, no, you wouldn't use that word yourself. You know, we just kind of said that. But it won't bother you when you read it. Heck, maybe you like being reminded of dated and offensive terms that used to be... Uh, used in polite society and popular culture years ago. Shows how far we've come. In fact, you might just call up that James Bond thriller on your Kindle just to dive back in and enjoy a little British colonialism in the way Bond refers to, wait, wait, what? Wait, that version of the novel has been changed on eBooks? And wait, so is the Road Doll stuff? And, and the Agatha Christie? What gives? Turns out publishers update your ebook whenever you sync online, so you'll have the latest version of any book you bought. That means even if you bought Charlie and the Chocolate Factory a decade ago, your ebook may reflect the newest version they are selling, whether you want it to or not. Heck, you just figured out how to delete that U2 album off your iPhone, and now this? Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Talk about it. I'm going That's a callback. That That's a callback. That's a callback. Yeah. And we had a story years ago about, I think it was 1984 where somebody said a certain company didn't have the rights to sell an ebook version of that book, even though they said they did, and the estate got them to yank the book. And so you had bought the book, and suddenly Amazon yanked it back and erased it from your library, even though you bought it. It wasn't even a fact of with all the, With all the notes that you took. Wrong, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. With all the important notes you took to 1984, yes. But they just yanked back the book. It's, that's because you do not own these books. You don't own the albums you've bought digitally. You don't own the books you've bought digitally. You don't own the movies and TV shows you bought digitally. You're just licensing them, and they can change them or remove them anytime they want. And that's a really big issue. In terms of this, I kind of think it's a mistake. If I bought a certain ebook version of a book, I don't necessarily want it updated. Publishers really update new books like they tweak, oh, a misspelling, or there's an incorrect line or a factoid, and they do that sort of invisibly. Maybe they should make notes so that you can see what it is. But when a book is, you know, a 20-year-old classic, I don't really expect it to change. Or if I have a cover that I like, even digitally, I don't want to look at a movie tie-in cover, but they've been updating that. So maybe you saw the Kenneth Branagh movie poster cover version of, of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express when you bought the book 10 years ago. So I think they need to be a little careful about this. But again, they've got the right. Now, I, I find this next story interesting, and I have uh, some background on it once we're done. Oh, well, then let me uh, read it. So if you're heavily invested in companies that own a lot of AM radio stations, and I am, my portfolio is bulging with companies that own AM radio stations, well, then you might want to consider tweaking your portfolio. By the way, we offer these comments for entertainment purposes only. If you're taking entertainment advice from Sperling and Michael, God help you. 
So the automaker Ford announced it is officially phasing out AM radio in most of its vehicles. For contractual reasons, the AM radio will remain on commercial vehicles for now, but that's about it. You buy a car from Ford, it ain't going to have AM radio. It's harder to get a good signal from AM, so manufacturers have to go to some bother to shield the radio, and Ford just doesn't want to bother anymore. I mean, Ford says tastes are changing, and the way people listen to stuff is changing, and so much AM radio is available online and on your phone and the like, so they're just rolling with the times, not saving a few bucks. And sure, yes, AM radio is often the most stable form of communication in emergencies, but don't most people use their cell phones? Anyway, some immediately said, thank God, at least GM isn't doing this, to which GM said, um, maybe? So they might be doing it too. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's not really a big deal, and I can tell you why why this is happening. Uh, Yes, AM radio is, uh, you know, the thing about AM radio, and if you ever listen to a baseball game, uh, you'll you'll hear it. They oh, it has to have c- continuous noise, which is why Vin Scully was so good at hosting and and calling a game all by himself because he had to do it for years and he couldn't stop talking because there needed to be constant a, a constant noise for for it to work. Yes, it's a little harder for the signals to get further uh, because there are fewer and fewer AM radio antennas. But the reality is, with cars, and I'm just talking about cars here. Cars are going electric and electric cars have uh, this, this kind of like on off torque thing uh, for the, it does, you know, it's basically a giant battery and that battery interferes with the AM signal. You cannot get AM radio in an electric car. It won't work properly. So what they're really doing is avoiding all the phone calls of, ah, my AM radio is not working uh, Ford. How come? It's like, well, they're all going electric. So at some point, they're going to have to get rid of the AM radio as well. Uh, Tesla, a lot of people complain Tesla doesn't come with a spare tire. Uh, it also doesn't come with AM radio for that reason, that once you once that battery starts, uh, you know, it's got a copper uh, coil inside. Once that coil starts spinning to move the car, the AM radio will cut out. Well, that's why that's happening. So as cars go electric, AM radio will disappear. A lot of AM radio. And I, yes, I, I mentioned baseball games there for a second. You know, that's where they duplicate, can, they duplicate uh, some FM. Uh, yeah, right. And they're on FM. So that's how I had to, to find the baseball games. Well, the problem here is that cell towers are very vulnerable. Cell towers are often out of reach. Cell phones are often don't get a signal, especially when you're in the highway or in rural areas. Uh, so people do get their communication from AM radio. But hopefully we're not talking about while you're in your car, but at your home. But right. the, less, the less access people have to AM radio, the less successful it will be. So maybe the government needs to keep the AM signal on so that people with radios in their home can still get that when you know the cell towers go down because they do in storms and problems and things like that. So, now, speaking of radio and storms, you sent me some weird text about the BBC ship. What was it the BBC shipping news or something like that? <laughs> the BBC shipping forecast is very famous. It's uh, like... I don't know if they do it every hour on the hour, but it's on BBC Four, and you can you tune in at night, and they will have a shipping forecast for all the ships at sea, and they go through all the the British Isles and detail the weather at every little area. So they'll say in Orkney, rains a bit thundery, winds three to four, later five, good yeah. to moderate, and then they and, say and they, the lots Isle of, of nautical. 
Yes. Lots of nautical references. Visibility and this and stuff. But it's just this quirky thing that you hear in England, and I guess they do it all over the world, but this is a famous one. And there are different people who do it, so people get their favorites. And some people use it to go to sleep. My mom, back in the 70s, it turns out, when she was a tennis umpire going to Wimbledon, uh, actually, Mary Carrillo, a famous player and now a sports broadcaster, you know, they were talking. She said, oh, you know, turn on BBC Four. They've got the shipping forecast. That'll put you to sleep right away. It's great. And so you hear these towns. The Isle of Silly is one of them. It's not spelled S-I-L-L-Y. But I want to go to the Isle of Silly now and, and Isle of Man and, and, you know, on and on. And she said, oh, check that out. My mom used it to go to sleep. And now if you go on YouTube, you can find like five hours of the shipping forecast. People turn it on instead of ASMR to lull themselves to sleep at night. And it has great words like thundery. I love the word yeah. thundery. That was that was kind of fun, and it's in that soothing voice. And, oh, and yes. I have to say, and it's got like weird words, like the mean tide will be at twelve and heading towards. <laughs> yeah, no, you have to you have to immediately then go find out what the hell are they talking. I mean, you can guess some of it, but others are you know, and just the rhythm of it is it's like poetry. It says that rain good, good occasionally moderate, rain good occasionally poor <laughs> it's like listening to air traffic control you know yes. it's like american air 780 uh or american air heavy 780 uh you know uh, head 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 to 20 at uh 340 except and that it's like, that what? has the tension of whether they're all going to die or not whereas the ships at sea <laughs> it's more about is there a light rain or not at four in the morning so it's less stressful yeah, and, and I was just in, in the UK, and I went to uh, the Design Museum, which is a great museum in, yes. in London, and they actually had a whole exhibit on ASMR, and this was part of it. The BBC shipping um, news was, they actually forecast. had a little- yeah, Forecast. Yeah. Yeah, it was, and like they, you could put on headphones and listen to it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. Oh, I know what that means. Set and drift. I know what that means. Uh, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, well, we will I, put, I don't know we'll why put a I link got... up in our show notes. Yeah. <laughs> moving on. Yeah, moving on to Wicked. I mean, uh, you know, the to- by the time you listen to this podcast, the musical Wicked will be the fourth longest running show in Broadway history. It passes Cats on Tuesday, April 11th, with its 7,486th performance. That's unbelievable to me right now it's grossing about two million dollars a week and all eight shows a week are basically sold out that is unbelievable to me as well but for the first time since it debuted in 2003 that is unbelievable 2003 it's a 20 year old show uh the show is at the top of the the show at the top of this won't be adding to its record by the way the phantom of the opera closes april 16th just shy of 14,000 performances Seriously, by the way, why not just keep it open and end a month later with an even number like that? That's what I want to know. Yeah, That's where uh, the good news ends, by the way, for Wicked. The revival of Chicago is the second longest running show in history, and The Lion King is the third. They're also going strong and have a six to seven year lead on Wicked. So big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, of course. Long running show has long run, but that's great for them. Obviously, our money is on the Lion King, and our show will still be on the air in 20 years when we can see Chicago has closed and Wicked has closed and the Lion King is still standing. By the way, we blithely said that the Lion King and Chicago are on the boards, and they've been on the boards for six to seven years longer than Wicked. To put that into perspective, if your show ran just for seven years, which is a hugely long time, you would be one of the 25 longest running shows in Broadway history. 
So this stuff is rare air. This stuff is way beyond what most shows ever do. If you go two and a half years, you're going to run for a thousand performances and that will get you in the record books because running a thousand performances is the benchmark for a blockbuster Broadway show. Yeah, this is like having a messy on your team. You know, it's like not every player can be messy. And, uh, and they and should all be L- neat. Lionel Messi, by the way, I'm not saying messy, but. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. All right. Well, that's a little inside football, I guess. Is it time for inside football? No, but it is time for inside baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, before you begin, Michael, I always did wonder, you know, how, you know, they, these streaming services prevent fraud for the record companies just going and pressing play on Spotify and walking out of the room. They don't. They don't. <laughs> okay, and it's, well, a, it's a big yeah. problem. It's a big problem. Everybody knows this stuff is going on, but it ain't the fans doing it. It's sometimes rogue record companies and bad record companies. It's a new form of payola and nobody's cracking down and it's getting to be big, big bucks. So it's a big problem. Fake streams are a big problem in music. Obviously, you know, people listen to music, and every time you listen to a song or an album, that counts as streaming, and maybe you stop after 10 tracks or 12 tracks, and there's huge complicated formulas to figure out, well, who gets what royalties based on that, and there's fights over how to divvy that up. Some people say, I pay $10 a month for, say, Amazon Music. Well, if I listen to 10 Joni Mitchell albums like I have this month, I'm not listening to uh, the latest big hit. I'm listening to Joni Mitchell. They say my royalty should just go to the people whose music I played. But that gets into a headache about how to do that. That isn't necessarily going to help the small artists. It might even help you know, the big artists of the world even more so. So everyone's trying to figure out how to fairly break up the royalties. The problem is there's a lot of fraud going on in that streaming. There's a lot of bands and groups and things that aren't real bands. They post music and then they work up bots to play that music so they can get royalty money. So here's what's happening. In the old days of Napster, fraud and music involved fans like me getting access to pirated music, just going to some rogue site and stealing downloads of music when they didn't have the right to do it. Nowadays, much of the fraud is not being committed by pirates, but by the music industry itself, including bad players. One problem is payola. That's folks who buy some streams to jack up numbers on a singular artist. Payola never goes away. You've got a new act, you want them to pop onto the charts or make it onto a playlist. You, in the old days, would go to a radio station and say, hey, you want some blow? You know, here's a, here's a pile of cash. And they would then report that they had played your song or actually play it. And that would help you work up the charts, get some visibility, and give your act a better shot at actually clicking with audiences. People would see it in the top 40 and they'd say, oh, I better play that song. And suddenly you've got a hit on your hands. Nowadays, they do the same thing, but of course, radio doesn't matter as much. So they are buying streams. They go to third-party companies and say, here are the five acts that are priority for me this month. Here's $2,000. You know, give me 100,000 streams of this, that, and the other thing. And that's how it works. But that's not the biggest source of fraud. According to analyses reported on in a billboard feature by Elias Light, most of the streaming involves people who post either pirated copies of music or even just AI-generated music that they've got themselves, or even just white noise, just junk. As we've reported, streamers are getting deluged with, with you know, downloaded music being posted on their, on, their, on their services. Massive amounts of music. A lot of it is like 30 seconds long because you have to be at least 30 seconds long to count as a playable thing, and right? And then post that junk up, 
or stolen copies of the new music by Beyonce. And then they have automated streaming services pump up the numbers or they do it themselves so they can receive a royalty. You create fake music, you put it on Spotify, you pay pennies on the dollar to get streams, and you make more money by doing that than the cost of faking the streams. That gets you access to royalty money. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You're, you're just posting crap on Spotify, then buying up or generating yourself plays for it, and then you get to cash in as if you've actually created music that real people are listening to. They know the bots are out there. They know they need to stop them, uh, and they're not bothering because partially it's being done by actual real record labels, and partially it's just complicated and it's a lot of work and they don't want to deal with it, and they're not the ones paying the price. Now, on the low end, According to this billboard story, fraudulent royalties probably account for 200 to 400, maybe half a billion dollars annually. That's a lot of money. On the upper end, it probably skims off a billion dollars worldwide. I say skim off because that's not an extra billion dollars they're generating. There's only so much royalty money to be had. There are only so many people who subscribe to these services and pay for access. And that's the money out of which they pull royalty money. So. There's only, say, $400 billion or $400 million annually available for royalties. It's not going to be $500 million no matter how many streams you generate. The only way to increase the amount of royalties is to increase the amount of subscribers. So you're talking about a fixed amount of money. And when these people actually generate fake streams for their fake music that nobody's actually listening to, they are stealing money away from the actual acts on record labels or indie artists who actually deserve a cut of the pie. They are taking away money that isn't going to be generated anywhere else. If you went to a pirated website, you were not actually stealing royalty money from people. You were just giving money to criminals. It was also wrong, but wrong in a different way. In this case, they are stealing from that pot of money that is all anybody has to hand out when it comes to royalties. So this is a big problem. Why don't they care? It's a because sometimes it's the record label itself generating these streams because they want to push up their artists to higher visibility. Why else don't they care? They're starting to because they're paying so much money to host all this digital crap that, as we reported a few weeks ago, like a third of all the music doesn't get played even once. And then yeah. you say, well, if it's not getting played once, they're not getting fake streams, and thus they are not generating any royalty money to steal from other people. That's right, but it's part of the problem. People generate a gazillion tracks, and maybe only 10% of them actually can even bother to generate fake royalties, but they're still having to host all the junk. So they are saying, you know what? Now that we're spending more than a small country to host all these digital files, maybe we actually care that a lot of it isn't getting played. And some of the stuff that is, that's 30 seconds long, why are you hosting a 30-second track? Unless it's from a legitimate album, from a legitimate label, you're getting ripped off. I think that we should actually create an album of 30 seconds, oh, but then we, and then just press play on it and then see what happens. Well, you, you, can, like, you have to generate like a million streams to get like a check for a dollar, but you can do that. <laughs> but, Sounds- you know, there's all these uh, Bitcoin mining facilities out there that are basically just churning out, uh, you know, equations and trying to, you know, figure out algorithms to get one Bitcoin. Uh, why not uh, do that with, with, you know, basically create a, you know, a farm of, of streaming. Well, they are, they do, they have, but you're saying, why aren't we doing it so we can make money on it? Well, yeah, right that's now, pretty much where I was when at. you say one Bitcoin, like it's no big deal. That's $30,000 as of today, $29,196 is the current cost of a single Bitcoin. So 
People would do a lot of money for that. <laughs> They'll do a lot of stuff for, you know, one Bitcoin. That's 30,000 bucks. That's an annual salary for a lot of people. Well, so, you know, I, I think hmm. that, uh, you know, a couple things. One, much like Bitcoin mining, uh, this is not a, an ecologically friendly activity. Having, having uh, services deluged with tons of digital tracks that nobody's listening to that take up a lot of space and or fraudulent ones that rip off people's royalties. I agree. And, and the streaming uh, of it alone, just, you know, generating the electricity to push out the, I know it's minor in comparison to say, well, it's not, know. it's not minor. It's a, it adds up, but you're right. People have talked about the ecological impact of digital music, even the legitimate ones, but that's why it, the music doesn't care where the source of energy comes from. That's why you want people to push as quickly as possible to solar, wind, battery, tidal, we still have nuclear and other f sources of energy that are renewable and safe. So it won't matter. You always want to use your energy smartly, but the mu digital music streaming is agnostic. It doesn't need you to burn coal or natural gas or oil. It just needs an energy source. And we have the ability to have energy cheaper from wind, solar, and battery than from coal and natural gas and oil. So there's no excuse for not transferring over. So then you always want to be smart about your energy use, but uh, digital music is no different than anything else in that it doesn't care where the source comes from. So yes, we need green energy, uh, but that's a different story for a different day. I will point out though that some people say, you know, maybe listening to vinyl or CD is better for the environment. Maybe, but in general, you want to switch to green. But I have to say I was certainly wrong. When people talked about the comeback of vinyl, the comeback of the CD, I'm like, yeah, yeah, not really. And no, it will never be the dominant format. None, physical music will never dominate ever again. But according to USA Today, they had a story on the history of the compact disc. Physical music sales last year, vinyl, CD, cassette, they totaled $4.6 billion worldwide. That's a lot more than I expected. That is, that is a much bigger market than I ever imagined it would come back to again. That's real money. Almost $5 billion now. Vinyl may not keep it up. CD, you know, I, I like CD. I still have it. I might buy the dark side of the moon on CD, but that is serious money. Billions of dollars, that's nothing to sneer at. So I have to admit I was wrong. You know, what's interesting is uh, I bought a, a trumpet method book uh, called Mitchell on Trumpet. Uh, it's a very well-known trumpet method book. Uh, and it comes with a DVD of Chris Tedesco playing. How adorable. Playing, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, where am I going to play this? How am I supposed <laughs> to play this? And thankfully, thankfully, they put it on YouTube. So they sell it now with a QR code as well. Uh, oh. and, and, and you watch this YouTube video, you're like, oh my God, this is so 2002. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we're over an hour. <laughs> All right. Maybe some of that was padding before we started doing the show, but oh my God, I'm sorry. All right. Obituaries. People died, but we love them and we want to respect their careers. The first and last are interesting. We'll skim through the people in the middle. We have a fuller obituary and tribute to their careers and what they've done. But we'll start with a little explanation. The difference between production designer and art director. Do you know? I didn't. I had to look it up. Well, the art director is the person that's on set. The production designer kind of has like, is kind of the whole, uh, you know, creates the world, creates the look and feel. The production designer is not on set ever? Well, I'm, I'm just... You I know. didn't. I didn't know that. I think the main difference is typically the art director works for the production designer. The production designer is the person in charge of the overall aesthetic look of the film. 
how it all comes together, the sets. The con- there are other people creating sets, creating costumes, obviously the cinematographer, the production designer, the cinematographer does not report to the production designer, but they are in many senses in terms of the, in charge of the overall aesthetic look. The art director on big movies is typically works under them and is more of the coordinator, the taskmaster, a liaison to all the other departments. They are creative as well, but you typically graduate from art director to production designer. Now on really small films, the titles are kind of in, you know uh, interchangeable, interchangeable, and so uh, you can't stick to that. But for a big studio movie, typically that's how it works. The art director works for the production designer, who is the overall person in charge. They kind of coined the word when they were making Gone with the Wind. That's where they started really using production designer in earnest. And we're talking about this because Oscar-winning art director turned production designer Norman Reynolds died at 89. He won two Oscars. And you have definitely seen his work, period, end of story. Yeah, absolutely. He won two Oscars and fired the imagination of generations of fans and filmmakers with his work on three massively successful franchises. In 1977, he was the art director on Star Wars, a film brilliantly designed to look like no other sci film ever before. It was lived in. Ships and cities were kind of dirty, creaky. They were believable in a way no one had ever even thought to do before. And of course, the next Star Wars movie, he became the production designer and did it for the next two in the original trilogy. In 1978, he was the art director on Richard Donner's Superman, the first and arguably still the greatest of the modern big-budget superhero comic book movies. In contrast to Star Wars, it was glossy and beautiful, a New York City, I mean metropolis of our dreams. Then, in 1980, he did Superman 2, often cited as one of the great sequels, and even better than the original, even though it wasn't. Uh, Then, after that, he served exclusively as a production designer, doing both The Empire Strikes Back, also often mentioned as one of the greatest sequels of all time, and Return of the Jedi. And if you're not done there, in 1981, he put a stamp on one more franchise, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That movie somehow combined the believability of Star Wars with the myth-making of Superman to create a Saturday matinee serial of our dreams with one cliffhanger after another that had audiences on the edge of their seats, even though they knew Indy was going to be all right. Among his other credits, the first Mission Impossible, Alien 3 for David Fincher, Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, maybe his best directed film, and Bob Rafelson's Mountains of the Moon, an excellent movie about two Western explorers searching for the source of the Nile. Wow. Star, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Superman. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And why I, mean, did, I, know, uh-huh. I know I give you a lot of grief for, you know, con- containing so many uh, or compiling so many obituaries every week. But, you know, once in a while we get someone like this and it's like, you know, you kind of think back and go, wow, what a career. He is in your head. And I, I looked yeah. at his credits and he stopped working in 1999, like 33 years ago, 34 23. years ago. 24, yeah. 24 years ago. I'm like, why did he stop? I go, oh, wait, he was 65. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, people don't always work into their 80s. Photojournalist and activist Kwame Brathwaite died at 85. He's a photographer, a journalist, and an activist. Kwame Brathwaite. He spent a lifetime documenting art and culture, like concerts with Stevie Wonder and James Brown, boxing matches with Muhammad Ali, not to mention work for New York City papers like the New York Amsterdam News, where my friend Vincent Davis has a byline. In the 1960s, he and his brother organized a series of pageants, dubbed Naturally, that featured only black models. The first was subtitled, The Original African Coiffure and Fashion Extravaganza Designed to Restore Our Racial Pride and Standards. Hey, it was the 60s. 
And guess what? A poster for that event is why we're talking about them. That poster helped popularize the phrase, Black is Beautiful. And that's why he's remembered today. Oscar-nominated cinematographer Bill Butler died at 101. I love this. He never went to film school. Could you get away with that today? I yes. Don't. You could, as long as you didn't work yeah. union, union movies, though, right? No, no. You could not go to, go to film. I mean, you know, you, you could... You just have to get in the union, I guess. Well, yeah, he, he never mean, went to film school. So when he couldn't figure something out, he'd pull out the ASC manual, the American Society of Cinematographers, and go, huh, how do I do this? <laughs> he worked on yeah. local TV with William Friedkin. They both loved movies, of course. He kept working into his 90s, unlike that layabout uh, uh, Norman Reynolds. No, no, no. So he was well-deserved to rest on his laurels. But anyway, Butler worked into his 90s, but the 70s were his heyday. The 1970s was when he really shone. He took over from Haskell West. Wexler on The Conversation, great movie, did it again halfway through the shoot of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Haskell was apparently a handful. <laughs> he had firm opinions. They shared. He did, an, he did yeah. Yeah, he's great. You'd want Haskell Wexler, believe me. They shared an Oscar nomination for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but his most famous work is on a film he didn't get an Oscar nomination for, Jaws. He always said that Shooting day for night on Jaws was his greatest accomplishment, and he guesses the other cinematographers just assumed it was a cheat in the in the you know in post or something because he's like that was really good. He also did Grease, Three Rockies, though not the first and the best one, Stripes, and even Anaconda. Now, did you ever play oh, wow. Catan, the board game? I never played Catan. I, I you know I never did, and I know Klaus Teuber died. Yes, uh, died at, at 70. seventy. Yeah, he developed yeah. the game originally called The Settlers of Catan in which players built settlements on a fictional island using five key resources, wool, grain, lumber, brick, and, say it with me, ore. If you played the game, you know those things. It sold tens of millions of copies, hugely popular since 1995, clearly one of the most important and influential board games of all time. Oscar-nominated actor Michael Lerner died at 81. Barton! Barton Fink! I still remember him bursting into the movie doing that. (laughs) You will, if you look him up, you'll be like, oh, him. Him, exactly. A classic, classic, you know, journeyman actor. He appeared in Elf, Newsies, Eight Men Out, tons of TV like MASH, The Rockford Files, and the most important and influential TV show of all time, Hill Street Blues. He was made to look like Ebert. I remember this. He was made to look like Roger Ebert when he played the mayor in Roland Emmerich's movie Godzilla, which still didn't get the film a thumbs up, but Ebert was amused. And his Oscar nomination came when he played an exuberant film exec barking out, Barton, Barton Fink, in the Coen Brothers movie. And his nephew, Sam Lerner, stars in the sitcom The Goldbergs. Finally, composer, pianist, and nun, Emahoy Tsegu Meriam Jibru, is dead at 99. Her life is unusual, to say the least, and you can read about it in the New York Times obit we provide a link to. Her music was featured in an album called Ethiopique's Volume 21 Piano Solo. Also, it's subtitled sometimes Ethio Jazz, a music instrumental, 1969 to 1974. Look up Emahoy and you'll probably find it. Gbrew's music was sort of rediscovered every few years because it would be played on NPR or the BBC or using a film like the 2020 documentary movie Time, which is an excellent movie, and it would cause a stir. You'd hear the songs and you'd go, who is that? But mainly, we're mentioning her death because in-house film critic Aaron Rich demanded we include it just so one of us would be forced to pronounce her name. He said, I dare you. Challenge accepted. And so we say, as best we can, Emahoy Tsegu Mariam Jibru, rest in peace. Now, say it with an accent. No, just kidding. An Ethiopian <laughs> accent? Uh, that's a little, I'll say it with my right hand, because you should save your left for other things. 
Oh, that's very that's very uh, culturally yeah. appropriate. I thank you, add. thank you. Amahoy, by the way, is a title used for female monks. It's not her first name. It's like saying sister, and the New York Times in their obit on second reference referred to as Sister Jibru. Just so you know. Well, now you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify. I'll, and in fact, what you should do is just leave that on repeat on Spotify or Apple Music or any one of those podcast aggregators. Uh, that Wherever you get podcasts, we, you can usually find us. Uh, and you know what? You'll want to subscribe so that you don't miss the next episode. And you can, in certain places, leave a review, rate us, rank us, you know, with the five stars so that, you know, we kind of scroll up to the top of the list and then people play us legitimately. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us as well as ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Again, all that info is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. And Michael Giltz has a website, and every week is something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's asteroidcity.com. Maybe they won't make a movie out of asteroids, but there is the Wes Anderson film, Asteroid City, and I'm kind of looking forward to it. I love the trailer. It's just so Wes Andersonian. The font, yes. everything about it, I just love it. <laughs> Handmade. Handmade. Uh, Bespoke. Exactly. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. 